Well, look at, look at, look at what we got here. We have Big Rat 310. I said EPA earlier, DVOA. You know, he brings all the analytics. And the man below us is always above us when it comes to things like, you know, money and wealth early possessions. That's Jared Silverclight. That's Big Rat 310. Gentlemen, how are we feeling tonight? Feeling all right. I miss football, but feeling all right. Nice. Um, want to get into things quickly. Um, either one of you can take the ball this way uh, you can. When we look back to this past weekend's AFC and NFC championship games, whose loss do you think will have a bigger impact in the long term than the short term? You know, it's, it's tough to say because I, I feel like both teams, the Lions and the Ravens, big step forward for each of them making it to the conference championship game. You could say that the Ravens carried definitely like a lot more expectations going into this season than the Lions were. I think with the Lions, people were hopeful that they would live up to expectations, which they did. But I think that the Ravens, ever since Lamar's rookie year, or does it count as rookie year? Um, his MVP season, he played yeah. half a year before that. Third, number one seed in the conference ever since that point. It's been like once you have a season like that, the expectation every year is if you don't make it to the Super Bowl, then it's a letdown. So the Ravens with more on their back going into it, but Lamar still being relatively young. This is still a developing team. It's a team that's ready to win now, but it's also a team that's not going anywhere. And I think with the Lions, you know, relatively new to the dance, you know, it's a first for Dan Campbell. It's a first for this group in however long, over 30 years, right? So I think that it's it's tough for me to say that either of these losses are going to be debilitating to the team's long-term prospects because I think that if you I think you look at the Ravens, you look at the Lions like they're both going to be contenders in the years to come. Like the next 5 years, you would think that these teams are going to be in the mix like at the top of their conferences. So I mean, I guess if you had to say what loss is more devastating, I I would lean Baltimore despite the blown lead in Detroit, but I think they're both they're both tough losses. But I, like I said, I think the same narrative applies to both teams. It's disappointing, but it's not like this was our last shot. Far from it. The opposite. Um, my only argument with – so my answer is Baltimore. My only argument with Detroit is we've seen this time and time again where teams, you know, get so far and then you don't see it happen again. Mm -hmm. Look at a team like, you know, the 06 Chargers – um, the Pittsburgh Steelers, Jaguars. remember the Jaguars, 2018 Jaguars, I think is the best example because after that season, that team like just crumbled, uh, mm -hmm. Pittsburgh, I want to give just because like my, cause that the Jaguars season, remember they thought, Hey, we're going to take care of Jacksonville. We're going to New England to play for the AFC championship game. And they got dog walked by Jacksonville. So the NFL, I still feel like it's the hardest league to replicate what you can do. Because also got to remember this for next year, with especially going back to the Baltimore side of things. Cincinnati and Los Angeles are going to be pretty good next year, in my opinion. I think both teams will be back to their normal form. The NFC side of it's going to be interesting. I'm more interested to see Detroit from the perspective of you're now the hunted and not the hunters. When teams are going to be coming into Ford Field and giving their best effort instead of, you know, victory lap, we're going to go in there, easy dub. It's now you got a team that's going to be giving you your best. So I think next year it wouldn't shock me to see Detroit, you know, lose a couple of stickers. Like you guys know how they had the game in December where they went to Soldier Field and laid an egg against the Bears team. Right. And I would I would say that for that reason, I think it depends on what you mean by who does this stick with more long-term. You know, like are you talking about for the quarterback? Are you talking about for the organization? Are you talking about for organization. the Yeah, because like – you know, the Lions organization, you know, like the owner and the season ticket holders, you know, they got to be thrilled. I mean, they hadn't had they hadn't been to the they had not won a playoff game since 1991. I think most people have heard that stat, but it's even scarier than that. 1991, they got a bye. They won one playoff game and then they made it to the NFC championship game and lost in 1991. That one playoff win in the divisional round was their only playoff win since 1956. So, really, it's not just they hadn't won a playoff game since 91. It's they hadn't won two playoff games since 
1956. Like, you got to be nothing but absolutely overjoyed. Whereas a Ravens fan, you know, you're the favorite going into that game. You have home field advantage against Mahomes, which you may not next year or the year after. It's hard to get the one seed. We, we see this all the time in the NFL. Even teams that stay at the top, it's really hard to get the one seed back-to-back years. I mean, the, the Bills have never gotten the one seed um, in this whole run. Uh, so it's, it's hard. So I can understand as a Ravens fan, knowing that you're still in the mix, but like being disappointed that, you know, that one, that was like a really good opportunity that you were favored in that you let slip away, especially the way they lost with Zay Flowers fumbling that ball through the end zone, which I think kind of had a ripple effect. Cause I think that was such a gut punch. Like you're about to stop the bleeding and narrow the score. And then instead you're down 10 points still after mm-hmm. like getting really close to scoring a seven point touchdown. And then and I- oddly that was, Basically the same thing that happened in that playoff loss in Buffalo a couple of years ago, right? Where they're right there, goal line, and instead of getting the touchdown, it's a pick six. And I feel like when Lamar like throws that pick like on the next drive, when he's, mm-hmm. like, he's kind of forcing it, and I think the reason he's forcing it is instead of being, you know, if you're down three, maybe you're running the ball more, maybe you're like running a normal drive, but you're down 10 with six minutes, you start to freak out. You start to think, fuck, we need a touchdown, we need a touchdown, we need a touchdown, and you just press like you 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 make a decision that you probably wouldn't have made if the score was a tie game or a three-point game or something like that so in, in a lot of ways I, I'm, that's not to excuse him i'm just saying I, I don't think that decision gets made if it's a closer game at that time and he doesn't feel like he has to force the ball so he was definitely pressing i think that what was really frustrating about that was you know i would all you almost would excuse it more if it was at the start of the drive where okay the drive begins he takes a deep shot and he gets picked off it's like well, I kind of get it, but this was actually a drive that was cooking. I mean, they were on the fringe of the red zone. You know, there was time, and, and the Ravens are a chunk play offense. They've always been that they're, – they're not that death by a million paper cut team. They are a team where when it's going good, they can move the ball very quickly, and that drive was working, and it, it just stunk that, like, I do get with the deficit you want to score fast, but it's not – they weren't that far out where you had to make a risky throw like that on first down. Like, that, that was just – it was brutal. Yeah, and I think I, I, – oh, sorry, go ahead. You, you go ahead. You go ahead. Uh, yeah, all I was going to say further, though, on that point about, like, you know, sure, the nature of the Lions' loss was worse uh, in the sense that they blew a larger lead. But I feel like a Ravens fan is just as disappointed. But, you know, Ravens fan probably hurts more in the moment because it was a really good opportunity, whereas the Lions, you were still underdogs. It was still the first year that they had won a playoff game. There's theoretically more. The other side of that, though – is that to Jared's point, like you can probably reasonably rely on the Ravens being in the divisional round, you know, within a year or two, you know, even if they, even if they don't do it next year because they don't win the division or they don't win in the wild card round, whatever, like you can reliably, they have a stupid win loss record when Lamar's a starter. Like it's absurd. Like they were the one seed in 2021 before he got hurt. And then they went eight and nine and missed the playoffs entirely. And they were like a two or a three seed when he got hurt in the 2022 season. And then again, like, the playoffs. Yeah, they only yeah. won that game though against Cincinnati. Exactly. And I, I feel like that I feel like that with Lamar like being healthy, you can trust the Ravens to win a lot of games. Whereas with the Lions, you know, the Packers are coming with Jordan Love's ascension throughout that playoff run. The Ben Johnson, I know he's staying for now, but he won't stay there forever. And when he leaves, you have to replace him. And as we just saw with the Eagles, when you lose Shane Steichen and you don't find a good replacement, it's almost like you're wasting a year. And then you fire the replacement and you start over all again. Or an even better example, the Falcons, they lose Kyle Shanahan. They bring in Steve Sarkeesian. They eventually get rid of him. And then they eventually like just dwindle down the drain for the rest of that Matt Ryan, Dan Quinn era. So I feel like, yes, like as a Baltimore fan, you have to think it was more of a missed opportunity than it was for Detroit. But I also simultaneously think, as a Baltimore fan, you're more likely to be in this spot again than a Detroit fan is. Uh, so I think, depending on your perspective, you could kind of take it either way. Um, another example I wanted to give with the NFC North stuff, too, is is that Minnesota, with a healthy quarterback this past year, does make the playoffs, in my opinion. And also, as well, I don't know if they're going to be good next year, but Chicago's definitely not going to be the Passover team that we kind of point the finger and laugh at. I know someone's got to finish in last place, but the the NFC North next year has the real makings of a truly competitive division where there's not a singular bad team. Like I'm not here to say like four and thirteen, but like last place in that division very well could be seven or eight wins. Which I know it's still not the best, but it's 
Seven to ten or eight nine for last place, which the Bears were this past season, is pretty good. Um, with that's my thing with the with the Lions too is I don't fault. I know some people fault, fault Dan Campbell for what happened. I like. I still get the whole you live and die by what you do because I feel like in the playoffs a lot of teams try to get you know creative and change things up and it usually ends up backfiring or they just stay status quo. Meanwhile, Detroit, you kind of live and die by the sword. My biggest thing with the Lions, though, is I want to see them go on defense and get some dogs. Because when you look on their defense, there's only one guy that's really a needle mover. There's one guy where I look at and go, he's a difference maker. He's probably going to win defensive player of the year once in his career, and that's Aiden Hutchinson. Because besides him, who else on that defense do you look at and go, that guy scares the hell out of you? Like, you know how San Francisco this year and Kansas City both have guys that can scare the hell out of you. Look at Baltimore, too. I know they didn't win undisciplined football aside, Kyle Hamilton is the top three safety in the NFL. Their mm-hmm. linebacking core, Patrick Queen, phenomenal player. Um, and their defensive line too, which I'll say this, Javion Clowney, 24, not a D lineman number. Go single digits or like low double digits. Um, but with Baltimore though, I want to make this point. To your point, Big Rad, with the Philadelphia Eagles thing, how is their defense going to look next year with Mike McDonald now taking his talents to the Pacific Northwest? That's another big thing to watch out for as well. Uh, I I would not put a lot of stock in that because here's the thing. Wink Martindale, you thought was the identity of their defense a couple of years ago too. I want to talk Ravens, to you both about your defensive coordinator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get, we'll, we'll get to Wink. Um, the Ravens, as long as I've known this team, because uh, one of my best friends and his brother are diehard Ravens fans. They were at the divisional round game. Um, so I've been, they've, they've low key been like them and the dolphins have been, you know, two of the AFC teams I've kind of paid a little bit more attention to over the last uh, 20 years or so. And the Ravens have just always had an identity on defense yeah. ever since the Ray Lewis days. This is a totally different team roster now, of course, from the Ray Lewis and, you know, Terrell Suggs era. And they've just still had that same playing style. Um, the same attributes about this team that were true 15, 20 years ago are still true today. So I don't really, I think that it's just ingrained in the culture over there and they have the talent. They've, they know, you know, who they like to draft, what types of players that they like to go for. So when it comes to them losing a coordinator, I would really not put a lot of stock in that. I just wanted to say it, you know, just because obviously Mike McDonald, like, look, he had the chance. He got out. Congratulations to him getting the Seattle job. So I think it's something to watch for. Um, another player I want to throw in that equation too for the Baltimore hard-hitting defense is Haloni Nada up the middle as well, who's I feel like is recognized for his talents, but like it's a name that you can kind of forget, and then you look him up and you remember his stats and go, "Holy crap, the guy's a really good football player." Uh, Big Rat, what were you going to say? Are you talking about Haloni Nada like in the past? Yeah, like with Baltimore. Oh, you're saying like well, like what Jared said? Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, 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 like legacy, like legendary. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hell yeah, I'm, yeah, of course. And Reed, yeah, I mean, they've, they've, that team was littered with talent when they won the Super Bowl yeah. with Joe Flacco. Yeah. The, the 2000 team as well with Brian Billick at the helm coaching. Uh, I think I do we think McDonald – No, so like, I kind of I, – I agree and disagree with Jared at the same time. But I, it, overall, I would say I agree. Um, I will say I do think Mike McDonald himself did matter uh, in the sense of he was really good at slowing down those Kyle Shanahan offenses, the 49ers, the Dolphins, the Texans. And the Ram, like the Rams did play well against them, but Matt Stafford was having a really good day. Like, I don't know if that was like a schematic screw up as much as it was Stafford and the receivers just having a really good day at a really good time. Um, Cause we have a lot of evidence that what they did to San Francisco, other teams haven't really been able to repeat and uh, what they did to the dolphins and what they did to Houston, Houston for all the love that like that offense and CJ Stroud and D'Amico Ryans and everything. And I know the game was tied at halftime. Houston did not cross the 27 yard line in that game. They did not run a play in the red zone. Like, their offense got shut down. But because of one kickoff return touchdown, it may not look like that, but they did not run a play in the red zone. Like, that's that's as that's Jets football. That's as bad as it gets. Like, that's how dominant the Ravens' defense was. And they also have a lot of talent. So I do think it's a good – like, from the Seattle point of view, I do think he has shown something schematically to get a lot out of – a really good team against offenses, offensive designs that are known for tearing up the NFL. However, to Jarrett's point, because the Ravens are a great organization and because they have a, like, it's almost like the legacy of the organization is elite defense. Like they had Ray Lewis and Ed Reed back in the day, and they almost have the closest modern day equivalents with Roquan Smith and Kyle Hamilton today. 
even though like I I know they're I'm, I'm not saying those are like the same kind of players, but nonetheless, like that same philosophy in terms of the heart and soul of your defense being a linebacker and a safety. Uh, so like like Jared said, like they will probably have a new name who will also probably be very good. I do think McDonald was good and he matters, but I do think a good organization like the Ravens just know how to find another guy that's good. They're not going to hire an idiot to be their DC. They'll hire a DC that some other team is going to want to sign in a few years. Yeah, like I'm saying, I'm not worried about like the Ravens' defense as a whole. I just want to know how are they going to look without McDonald there. But I do feel like, you're right, um, organizations that look great GM history, great just like front office structure as well. An owner, you never really hear anything from a Steve Bishotti. The Ravens are in good hands. I'm just excited to see what that looks like. And now we have an NFC West where the median coaching is just 40. Something crazy to think about. Um, gentlemen, we brought it up earlier. Who wants to take the helm first on what the hell happened to your defensive coordinator? Who, who wants to go? <laughs> Now let him go. I guess I'll, I'll speak very. I'll speak very quickly and then shut up about it. It's hilarious. Now you can okay. Say. Let's let's hear the, the the wink in time that happened in uh, New Jersey. Yeah. So um, it's bound to happen. You have a terrible season that uh, falls well short of expectations. There's infighting. There's finger pointing, and it it really it really stinks. You know, to me, losing Wink Martindale is like. To me, it's like you go to a restaurant for dinner and the appetizer is really good. However, the main course is horrific, absolutely terrible. And you leave the meal thinking, oh my God, I had the worst meal of my life that you forget about the appetizer. And then you just start, you're in such a bad mood that you start picking apart everything. You know, it could have, it could have been, uh, could have been a, you know, clams oregano. You're like, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, there was too much salt. Eh, it was overcooked. It's like in the moment you liked it, didn't you? Didn't you? And so you get anybody who, regardless of the final scores said, this defense was the reason that they lost the Cowboys game. Okay, they got embarrassed, clowned, what have you. Nearly every other week, it's the offense turning the ball over, getting, you know, short fields to defend. It You watch these games front to back. You're not looking and thinking the defense blew it. They got gashed. And, you know, so you get this finger, you know, you get a day ball and wink. Um, apparently wink kind of isolates the defense, you know, during the week in preparation for these games. Day ball doesn't like the fact that the defense is showing up as offense. He goes around and fires all of it. You know, he fires the assistants that he brought with him from Baltimore and then Wink just goes like, you know, fuck you, I'm leaving. And to me, this is like emblematic of an organization in disarray. And if I had any, you know, this is the type of thing where, you know, if you're a Giants fan and you want to write off this season and think like, all right, you know, we had bad luck with injuries, but we still have a solid, you know, coaching staff in place. We'll get them next year. To me, this is kind of like a, oh my gosh, here we go again. And because I, I think that Wink absolutely whipped this defense uh, into shape to an extent. Were they like a dominant unit? No. But were they a good enough unit to win with a competent offense? Absolutely. So I'm really annoyed at the way things went down. And I really hope that this isn't a sign of things to come of Dayball having a kind of a toxic culture there. Because Lord knows we don't need another one of those. We do not need Dayball to get himself fired next year and go through this Joe Judge and Ben McAdoo thing all over again. Not Not after 2022. So... I'm kind of – I'm not happy with the way this whole thing fell apart. My big question with the Giants next year is going to be the quarterback play. Obviously, look, God, Big Ryan and I, we love DJ. But my thing, too, is, is just, look, we Do don't you? know when he'll be back. Why? We don't – why? We just – we record a podcast every time he's on primetime. It started as a complete coincidence, but then it, like, funny things kept happening during those games. Like, famously, that game that he fell – on his like 80 yard scramble against the Eagles and he just fell in an open field. And so yeah. we just kept we just kept doing it as tradition. And then we did the game uh, against the Buccaneers where I was on the Giants hard to cover that plus because I was like plus eleven and I'm like yeah. the, the number just didn't look right. And then the Giants barely lost the game. I think Daniel like threw an incompletion on fourth down to lose the game. So it was just it was a two, that's, it was a two point conversion. They yeah two point conversion that he, he missed. But I, I was happy that I got the got the points. Uh, and then we just kept going on and on with it. Obviously, this year we didn't do it in the games. He was hurt, like the one against Buffalo and then the game against Green Bay. Because obviously he had the – was it a neck or was it a, something – the neck or the shoulder and then obviously tore his ACL against Vegas. But with the with the quarterbacking there next year, because 
it's a real, real prove it year for Danny. I know a lot of like Giants fans. There's, there's a pocket of them that are so sold on him. But if he's not the man next year, if he can find an out, you got to get out from underneath that contract. Because I know Jared and I had a post mortem about him about a month ago. And then yeah, I'm, the defense, I'm hoping that they do it this year. Yeah, I mean you're picking sixth. You have an extra pick in the second round. I'm I'm praying that there's a rumor that Joe Shane they're not showing their hand that they actually you know him and Dayball they actually do plan to take their quarterback this year and they're just um, trying to keep everyone you know trying to stay in the dark about it. Um, and I hope that that's true. Just because to me you have the opportunity and we've seen it in this league. Just people. It doesn't take this long to know if a quarterback is good or not. And especially when you have not only performance concerns, but injury concerns. I mean, there's so many red flags around this guy. And I don't think that it matters that he's under contract. They're really only committed for next year. And they're in one of the more advantageous cap situations this offseason out of all the teams. So, you know, just, I don't know, suck it up. I mean, it happens. You look at – you know, the Raiders with Jimmy G, they signed him to a deal and they saw he was horrible and they moved on. It shouldn't, I don't know why the Giants have to subject themselves. Like they're, they're so convinced that it has to be Daniel Jones. They, you, you got rid of Gettleman and they still won't get rid of Gettleman's guys. It's, it's just mind numbing to me. And yeah, if because if you go into next season with Daniel Jones, it's just going to be the same thing over and over again. Like chances are, it's not going to go well. We've seen one season since 2019 that has gone according to plan. Either he underperforms or he gets injured. I I don't. You're going to have a really hard time convincing people that that's not what's going to happen again. Was 2022 according to plan though, or was it just kind of like the you got the right hand? It's like when you're at the poker table and you know. The, the the river just falls your way. You know, was that 2022 or was 2022 living up to expectations? Because it seems like it was one of those games, you know, you beat some teams you, you're not supposed to beat, and then that's he get Because that's, at the end of the day, that's he get in the playoffs. Like, that's just something I want to point out. Um, I mean, you know, I I get that. The, the schedule was definitely lighter last year. They, they, you know, they benefited from that. But I think you could say that about any team. At the end of the day, Jones had a very good season last year. He played mostly mistake-free football. He was cooking with his legs. Um, however, I think that we've seen the playbook is limited with him. You know, I, I think that when you can slot in Tyrod Taylor, and then when you slot in Tommy DeVito, and there's more downfield passing than there was with your franchise quarterback. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, the listen, if Jones starts next year, he might be sleeping with the fishes. Hey, eh? yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah. Because yeah. here's my thing I want to point out with this whole Jones. I, I, I assume it'll be DeVito and Taylor will be the quarterback room next year, unless things change. Look, month. But here's the thing, though. Do you want that Jets conundrum where Jones is playing, he's bad, and you have the fans starting to clamor from the other guy, and you put the other guy in, and he's not that good? I know Big Rat's loving to hear this right now because it's Jets slander and Danny's not here. So, like, that's the one thing I think you should avoid. So I feel like they have to have their guy going into the year. Defensively, this team has some pieces. Deontay Banks, I know in the Patriot game, really impressed me. Isaiah Simmons yeah. too. That was a that was a hell of a trade by Joe Shane. Um, mm-hmm. My only thing is for the draft this year. If you want to, my what I would consider doing, get the wide receiver or the offensive lineman. Go out in free agency, get an offensive lineman because guard play for you guys last year was oof, Maron. It was just, it was not good at all. Like we can we can all agree. Like Andrew Thomas, solid left tackle. Evan Neal, Andrew Thomas really blossomed into his third year, so I want to see what Evan Neal does in his third season at right tackle. I still think there's room to grow, but if it's not this year, it's nearing Mekhi Becton territory. Yeah, um, it's... It, yeah. And then the only thing I was going to say, too, is what do you do with Saquon Barkley? What like what happens there? Because that's a Gettleman guy through and through. So with Saquon, I think that the current running back market opens up the possibility of bringing him back. Um, He obviously is super important to this team. His teammates love him and Mara wants him to be a giant for life. Whenever the guy's healthy, he performs like a superstar. So if it works out again, advantageous cap situation, as long as it's not putting them in a position where they can't sign anybody else, which I don't think that it will because running backs are currently just 
super undervalued in this league. You know, no one can get paid. So if that results in a veteran um, Saquon Barkley with an injury history coming back to the Giants on a team-friendly deal, while they also draft another running back maybe in the mid-rounds, I think that that's the way to go. I think that now is the time to kind of transition. The Giants need to kind of be more like the rest of the league in going to a running back committee um, type of situation. I, I think it would it would add another, especially you know if it opens up um, things in terms of. Uh, I'm not sure what happened there, but um, what I was going to say was too is I feel like to be with the Giants, you have to. Uh, it was something I must have heard my end. Uh, you have if you want to coach for the Giants, so you have to be bald. So we have to think of what bald offensive coordinators or uh, defense coordinators, excuse me, are available, and then go from there. You know. Okay. Okay. Well, if you look at it, look at the history of Giants coaches. Like That's the two guys true. they brought in, Carmen Brasillo on offensive line and then the running back coach for the Saints. Brian, Brian Dable does like to hire people that look like him. So, it, would, it, would, it be at all crazy, would it be at all crazy if, like, let's say the Giants do nothing? Um, but I did I did read – I forget who wrote it. I think one of the Sports Illustrated guys, rest in peace, uh, that website. Uh, well, one of the SI guys was saying that um, the Giants were scouting quarterbacks when they were like like the worst team in the league, like two and ten or whatever. And then obviously they started winning some games at the end of the year, so it kind of inflated their record a little bit and maybe put them a little bit out of reach. Although, as Jared said, they have two second round picks. By all accounts, this is a deep quarterback class. You know, like you do, you do. I will tell you though, from experience with my team with Josh Rosen, and you kind of saw this. You're seeing this now with um, a little bit with Desmond Ritter, but also a little bit with Sam Howell and obviously with Griffith's team as well. Uh, Griff, like, there, if you use like a second round pick on a quarterback, let's say, for example, it's like, unless you're prepared to start him week one, which even no matter how much you hate Daniel Jones, the second round pick might not be ready uh, just by through no fault of his own. And so if you're in a situation where the Falcons were like a year ago, where they finally played Desmond Ritter, who was a third-round pick, but the point nonetheless applies. He was a third-round pick. They played him like in December. They played him for four games. And it generally looked pretty good. But they were like, like, what the hell do you do with that? Like, 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 do you just guarantee that guy gets the next year when you're not sure really if he's that good or not? And it's it's similar, I guess, to what the Titans are doing with Will Levis. Now, Will Levis got more time. He probably got like eight games. But still, yeah. it's like you watch Will Levis, and it's like some games were terrible. Some games were excellent. I don't know what to do with this. So by default, I'm just going to give him another full year as a starter. Ex- you're not doing that with a lot of confidence, though, you know? Like, so that's, yeah, I guess, right. that's some of the tricky like, situations you might run into. And then the point I, I want to make with my – can I make a point with my team quickly? Just because, yeah. look, death taxes, we make life about the Patriots here on YWC Football Talk. The no, Mac Jones thing, like, we look, we all know we gave up on – and then Bailey Zappi was a fourth-round pick. But the thing was, 2022, we saw with the Packer game, there were some signs. The Lions game, he did enough. The Cleveland game, he exploded. But then this year when he played, for every good play, there'd be two bad plays. So it's just one of those things that, like, when you get – if you want to wait and, you know, use a quarterback, unless you're getting him early on in the second round – there's a reason why they're going in the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth round, because that's where they are. We kind of seeing it too with Sam Howell right now with Washington as well. Um, and then the other point I want to make as well, because I feel like some people do like the Tom Brady thing where it's like, oh, he's a sixth round pick, he's there. But here's the thing, Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, and Brock Purdy, those are one in a million guys. Those are guys where, look, they just fell into the right situation, took off, and the rest is history. I know we all like the pain flat of Dak Prescott considering the playoffs playoff history but nonetheless he's a successful starting franchise quarterback in the nfl same thing with brock purdy was mr relevant and we all know what happened with round six pick 199 in the year 2000 so that's my little ted talk yeah i mean it's definitely a conundrum for sure um i think that i mean really i think the ideal situation would be to try to get rid of jones altogether i don't know if you're gonna be able to find any takers with the contract but I, w- I mean, I would not be against just committing to a rookie. They're probably not going to do that. I know that it has probably maybe a 10% chance of happening based on everything that we've heard about this team's plans. But my points earlier stand. I just I think that there is so much more upside with Shane and Dayball picking their own quarterback and being able to develop this kid with a better supporting cast than what Jones had to go through 
Jones having to learn how many new systems this early into his career. I'm not going to say that Jones couldn't have been or couldn't be a good starter in the league, but it's been, like I said, it's just been so many years now where it's like, okay, if, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. And why would you risk that on somebody who has performance and injury concerns when you're picking sixth in a quarterback rich class? And even if you're, even if it's not Caleb Williams, if it's not Drake May, there are a lot of other options out there that I'd argue would have more upside than rolling with Daniel Jones. And I don't, I don't know if you're expecting to compete for the Super Bowl next year or something, and that's what you're worried about jeopardizing, but you've got some young pieces on this team. You've got some promising guys that you've drafted within the last two to th- last couple of years. I think that Dayball and Shane have good, have done a good job adding to this roster where they've been able to, as the cap situation has gradually become more and more favorable. It's time to get these Gettleman guys out of there and start building your team. There's no reason for them to shackle themselves to this guy. He's not shown that he's worth it. Um, the only other point I'll make is, look, I know neighbors and Odunze will be there at six. So if they are there, that's going to be really hard to pass up on because it could be the ultimate test for Danny where, hey, we got you a wide receiver one. Darren Waller, look, we all know that it's a very roller coaster kind of player. But if you can make it work with a Malik Neighbors or a Romo Dunze, a guy that you can get the ball and he can turn the Jets on, it may turn it around to where, hey, it'll limit the mistakes and it'll make Daniel look better. The other thing I'll say, too, is is for the Giants week one, they can't be playing in a prime spot like they were last year. Like if, uh, if you're the NFL mm-hmm. and John Mara, don't put them week one primetime Sunday night football. Put the, put, have the Giants be a 1 o'clock game. Have the Giants be maybe a 405 or 425 game, depending on where they play. Because when you're in prime time, especially week week one, the expectations just get heightened so much more. Like we saw this year, look at everything with Kansas City, Detroit, and then look at your game. If your game was that 40 to nothing game was a 1 o'clock kickoff, yeah, it gets noticed, but it also gets lost in the shuffle of the other games. Meanwhile, it was prime time, all eyes on you, and everyone right away went, Oh, crap, here are the New York Giants once again. Yep. No, believe me, the Danny Dimes primetime show, I'm, I'm hoping that that comes to an end. Uh, yeah, particularly against uh, the Cowboys, um, that they've just had a field day with us um, <laughs> the last uh, the last several years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, I, I do agree that about the elite receivers being available. I mean, that's the thing. It is a, it's a receiver-rich um, draft as well. And that's yep. really where the quarterback, you know, stance on my part comes from is that even if you went quarter, because they have multiple second round picks, um, there's even the trade up possibility. You know, even if you don't, if you don't get a Malik Neighbors, you can get an Amika Ibuka, Adonai Mitchell. There are guys, I think, you know, in the second round, late first round that Robert you can Wilson. fall back on. Robin Wilson is yep. another one from Michigan. Robin Wilson, yep, definitely. Um, uh, or you because here's the thing: you could pass up on a you could pass up a quarterback and wideout. Go OL, you know. Maybe Joe Alt's available. Um, I'm Evan Neal is another one. You know, I've shied away from ripping him because I think the performance just speaks for itself. That's another one. How long are you going to wait for this guy to become good? You know, why do we have to relegate ourselves to like the development or whatever when? All these other teams, if they don't see something in year one or year two, they just move on. This league is fast moving. You can find yourself – look at the Lions. Finding yourself in, in Super Bowl contention being an afterthought last year. It doesn't take as long as narratives would have you believing that they do. No. My my thing with it is just you got to win some games that, you know what, you don't have any business winning like you guys did with the Packers earlier this year. Um but let's shift focus off of you and everything else because I want to hear not so much about the Vic Fangio departure from Miami, but that weird Javon Holland video that followed up with Kenny Rocks. <laughs> like, was the was it just not a fit in Miami? Because we all know, look, at the end of the day, he was going to be an Eagle. We all know that. We'll see how what whatever Kellen Moore and uh, Kellen Moore and Vic do in Philly. But with Miami, like, what exactly went south there? Because look. You and I spoke 24 hours before the game for the AFC East. Obviously, it didn't go your way. And then the next week, in freezing cold Kansas City, shit happened. 
So ultimately with Miami, like what just what like where did everything start to lose control, especially with when it comes to things like personnel and coaching? Well, yeah, with the Fangio stuff, um, there's the Fangio stuff, and then there's the end of the season stuff, which are kind of somewhat related, but not really. Um, the Fangio stuff, it's weird. So Fangio always wanted to go to the Eagles. I yep. think we have enough evidence to show that. He was a consultant for the Eagles in their Super Bowl run last year. The Eagles always knew, even if they didn't maybe didn't know that Jonathan Gannon would go to Arizona last year, and that's why there was like a tampering investigation. Clearly, they weren't like super thrilled with how that went down. But Jeffrey Lurie said in 2021, we know that we're renting Jonathan Gannon. They always knew that Jonathan Gannon was at some point going to leave. So they bring Fangio on as the consultant. Fangio's family is from Pennsylvania. Vic Fangio is a diehard Philadelphia Phillies fan. Like, diehard. There's a profile in The Athletic when he was named the Broncos head coach where he mentioned that he couldn't go to sleep until he knew that the Phillies had won or lost their game that day. Like, this is a diehard baseball fan. And so he's really tied to Philly. So they didn't know that Jonathan Gannon was going to take the Cardinals job because they were going to the Super Bowl. So like, yeah. as you see now, like a lot of those jobs get filled beforehand. So Fangio in the meantime is like, okay, it seems like Gannon is going to come back for another year. The Dolphins are offering me a big contract. Let me take that contract. The Dolphins offer him the DC contract and then Gannon ends up leaving. And then the Eagles try to get him back, but he had already agreed to go to the Dolphins. That's why people can look this up. There was like a one week period where yeah. it was like, Vic is coming, but is he like the local beat writers who have no sources and all their sources are when the Dolphins PR team just mass texts all of them. The local beat writers said it's official. And then we still waited another week. So that really tells you the Dolphins thought it was official, but Fangio was having second thoughts. And clearly it was, he was trying to see if he can get that Eagles job after all, because he didn't know Gannon was going to leave. So already like it ends, he ends up just, you know, he had already agreed to the Dolphins contract, so he ends up just kind of taking it. And the Eagles hire Sean Desai, who is their second choice. And Sean Desai is a Vic Fangio disciple. So yep. it, the, the transition already made sense. So the relationship already kind of got off to a rocky start. You know, it's like, you didn't really want to be here. He was asked in training camp, like, is it true that you wanted the Eagles job? And he basically said, I will neither confirm nor deny. It's like, what? Just say no. Like, you can deny this. Don't worry if it's true. Uh, but, hell, I mean, most coaches would just lie. He, I guess, is an honorable man and didn't want to lie to the media. So he just said, I will neither confirm nor deny. So I think already it was kind of on a rocky start. I think already his heart was in another place. And where even if things did go well, even if things did go well with him and the players, I think at the end of the day, his heart was always in Philly and he always wanted to go back to Philly. So big picture, can't really blame him that much for that. However, while he was here, and you have to decipher, is this because as, you know, you kind of see in all sports, as like the dynamic of the modern athlete changes, you know, growing up in the social media age, having more mass representation than ever before, having a marketer, an agent, a social media manager, uh, a therapist, a physical therapist, like as these people get like more and more teams and as sports gets more and more popular and there, these people have really big followings everywhere. You know, dealing with the modern athlete is maybe different than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. And maybe someone like Vic Fangio, who's definitely known as old school, maybe doesn't connect with players the same way. He obviously didn't connect with players in Denver. And maybe no matter – even though he is a schematic genius and everyone seems to agree he's a schematic genius, maybe there's something there that with these players in the Dolphins roster, they didn't really get along. The Javon Holland video is pretty self-explanatory. He told Vic Fangio to kick rocks. He literally threw rocks in the air and kicked them. He told Vic Fangio to kick rocks. He basically told them to fuck off. I'm sorry. I don't even know if we can curse on here. You can't. Uh, you can't. I just have to put the explicit when I'm editing. My bad. So, like, parental advisory logos just pop up over Big Rat's mouth. <laughs> yeah. Put in the thing, you know, if you want. Whatever makes yeah. it easier for you. No, no, no. I leave it in there. It's just like, the, it, like it basically, whenever the podcast will load onto Apple, you'll see, like, the little E next to it. That's all. There was reports that he and Jalen Ramsey didn't get along. Like the last few weeks of the season, reporters noticed that Jalen Ramsey, whenever they would interview him in the locker room about like the defensive plan for the week and whether or not he would shadow, whether or not they would play cover two, stuff, stuff like that. He would get very grumpy. Like, I don't know. Ask the coach. 
Like he, there was kind of already signs that he and Vic weren't getting along. Vic famously didn't play camps. The Dolphins drafted a cornerback in the second round, Cam Smith from South Carolina. The Dolphins, Xavier Howard didn't play the last three games of the season. He got hurt on the first drive against the Ravens and then didn't play against the Bills, didn't play in the playoff game. So most fans thought logically, you know, Eli Apple had been terrible the whole year. Jared knows that. And, uh, Cater Kohu, their slot corner, they were putting outside sometimes because they didn't trust Eli Apple either, and he was getting toasted on the outside. He's only good as a slot, even though he kind of had a bad year this year. So uh, fans were wondering, wait, your top corner's out. These two guys suck. It's the end of the year. You know, it's one thing, like, in September – oh, sorry, one second. Oh, well, you know what, Jared? It's you and me. Um, One thing I want to kind of lean into right now – is obviously the Super Bowl coming up in about 11 days. Kind of a big game. Kind of a big game. Um, right. more than, oh, we're that. back. We're good. We're good. Right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Great that pivot. But, so so just, like, <laughs> most fans thought, logically, like the two guys suck. And it's one thing at the beginning of the year, look, the rookie's not ready. They don't know the playbook. You know, they have to get their feet wet. Like, we all understand those excuses. It's like, yeah. but it's December 25th. Like, you would think they're closer to a second-year player than a first-year player now. Like, what? why aren't they playing? And so no one knows how good or bad Cam Smith is. He never played. Like, Ethan Bonner, a practice squad cornerback, played ahead of Cam Smith in the playoff game. Like, no one, no one understands why he wasn't even given a chance. Like, I don't – no matter how bad you are in practice, I, I don't think it's possible for you to be so bad in practice that I'm certain – that like it's not even worth playing you over a practice squad corner or veterans that we know aren't good. Like, th- so there's some speculation that maybe he and Cam Smith didn't get along, and he didn't play Cam Smith, and that pissed off players in the locker room as well. He was apparently not very collaborative with Mike McDaniel. Like, and I, I think part of that is Mike McDaniel's fault. I think Mike McDaniel truly thought, oh, because Mike McDaniel loves Vic Fangio. Like, made it very clear he's a defensive genius. He's the smartest defensive mind in the NFL. So he truly like built him up and gave him a lot of power on defense. And then when Mike McDaniels, the head coach, wanted to collaborate on defensive schemes and defensive calls, Vic Fangio wouldn't really listen to him. And, you know, in some ways, it's like you created that monster by giving him all that power and putting him kind of at your level already, kind of in that way that you kind of made it easier for Vic Fangio to ignore you. But also it's like, you know, I know it's a tough dynamic. Like you're a head, former head coach. You're in your mid sixties. You've been an NFL coach forever. Thanks, Mike. It's my brother. You've been an NFL head coach forever. You're in your sixties. Why is it? Why do you have to listen to anyone in any way? You know, especially a younger 37, 37 year old coach or something like that. So in a way I kind of understand, but I also think both sides could have done a better job mending that relationship because they, they kind of like let egos and player relationships get in the way. So I'm not here to badmouth Fangio or say he's a bad defensive mind. I still no. think he is. Um, the Dolphins defense played well when it was healthy. It's really hard to judge them by the numbers because Jalen Ramsey was hurt the first eight games of the year. That's their best player. That makes a big difference. And then the last three games, like from Baltimore onward, they lost Bradley Chubb, who was awesome this year, like a career resurgence for him. And they obviously they lost Jalen Phillips. Obviously they lost Xavier Howard. They lost Andrew Van Ginkle. They lost their entire pass rush, which is why he blitzed Mahomes on 60% of his snaps in the playoff game because he really felt like there was no way to get pressure otherwise. So, like, it's hard to judge the defense by the full season numbers. They didn't have Jalen Ramsey for the first eight games. They didn't have a lot of their best defenders the last three games. So you're really – like, if you just isolate that five-game sample, like, it was an elite defense. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just a five-game sample. Um, You know, you can't – like, they played well against the Chiefs in Germany. If people go back and, like, watch that game, the Dolphins' defense played well against Mahomes that day when everyone was healthy. They didn't play so well against them in the playoffs when everyone was hurt. Uh, and frigid temperatures, obviously. So, yeah, yeah like, I, I think he's a good defensive mind. I just think his heart was never in it. I think it wasn't a good dynamic with him and Mike McDaniel. I would like to think he'll do better in Philly because that is home for him. But I also think that if he doesn't improve his repertoire with players and if he doesn't respect Nick Sirianni as his boss and not his partner, but his boss, yeah. then you might see very similar stories about this a year from now. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I like Vic as a DC guy. You know, my thoughts on him as a head coach because who was banging the drum after year two to get him fired? That was me. That was on that for a very long time. Um, 
the ultimate thing with the Miami Dolphins is just I don't is the team like a there's a two part question. Is the team at like a crossroads right now, or is it just kind of status quo with the team like right now? Because obviously, look, we know like we were bringing up how the season didn't end the way you guys wanted to. The last win was obviously that cowboy walk off with the field with the five field goals by Saunders. And then when it comes to the draft, what's the biggest area of need when it comes to this football team? I would say they're at somewhat of a crossroads because they they have to address the elephant in the room. I mean, there's simply no other way about it. They have to address whether or not to extend Tua and whether or not they're going to have him play on his fifth-year option. Because it's the reason why this decision is so complicated is not even just because of Tua itself. It's because the system itself built in protection for these things. You have a fifth-year option, right? So you have another year. And then even if they play on their fifth-year option, you could just apply the franchise tag you know, make them like they'll make like 30 million or whatever. And so you yep. really have the other contract for two years. We saw the Cowboys do this with Dak and Dak is like a somewhat respected quarterback and they still did. And now great. He didn't have a fifth year option. That was the only difference because he was a mid round pick, but it was the same principle. They let him play on his last year of his contract. Then they applied the franchise tag and then eventually they extended him, you know? So it's the system kind of like the two will be the Dolphins quarterback the next two years. You know, it's not like if they don't extend him, He's gone. So it, it, it's a complicated question of do you pay him? Because if you pay him what his representation wants, you're going to have to pay him $50 million a year. And that's a tough pill to swallow. I'm sure the Dolphins would love to give him the Daniel Jones contract. Him and his agent are going to tell you to screw off. They're like, <laughs> I adjusted there. They're, they're going to be like, screw that. We just led the NFL in passing, which they did. The Dolphins have had a winning record for four straight seasons. The only other teams to do that are the Chiefs and the Bills, like ever since Tua got here. The Ravens can't say that. The Niners can't say that. The Bengals can't say that. Just the Dolphins. So, like, it's – and, like, whenever Tua doesn't play, the team falls apart. Like, no matter what you think of Tua, no matter how great you think Tyreek Hill is, no matter how great of a genius you think Mike McDaniel is, and they're doing everything, when Tua doesn't play, the team falls apart. They're like two and eight when Tua doesn't play the last two years. Like, I promise you, I don't want him to get hurt again and to prove everyone wrong again that they need him to run this offense. I don't want that because then I lose Tua and we lose the game. Yeah. So, I, unfortunately, I have to root for him to be perfectly healthy and everyone just has to be smarter about this. So, uh, having said that, with Tua's body of work, you know, with the lack of playoff wins and, you know, kind of struggling in that Ravens and cheat and Bills game at the end of the year, you know, there is a genuine question of, is this worth $50 million a year? And I think that's very fair. I think as we saw with Joe Flacco, he got paid. He was the highest paid quarterback in the league when he didn't deserve it. Sometimes it's not about what's fair. It's about what the market dictates. Uh, there's also the last thing I'll say in this. There's also a benefit though, to extending him. that I think people real don't realize like, when you let's say you extend to a four years, two hundred million or whatever, right? You can make it so his cap hit in his first year of his contract is really small, because very rarely Jimmy G and the Raiders like being an exception. Like we'll see with Daniel Jones. Very rarely with quarterbacks, it's it's kind of hard to take on dead money with quarterbacks. It's like you pay them their guarantees and then you cut them or you extend them. You know, like it's not like it's not like other positions where it's like you have to cut a bad pass rusher and take on a thirty million dollar cap hit. That doesn't really happen in the NFL. Like it, like sure you'll have a team like Atlanta that trades Matt Ryan. They don't even cut him. They just traded him and take on like a big cap hit. But generally, like generally, that's not really how this works. So it's like if you're going to give someone an extension with any sort of guarantees tied to it, you can make their cap hits higher in the later year so you clear up more cap space now, which the Dolphins desperately need because the Dolphins are going to be like $50 million over the cap this summer, and they have a ton of pending free agents. So it would make sense for them to, if they were to extend him, they'll make Tua's cap hit in the first year like a million dollars and then save the rest of that $49 million of his salary to the other players that they might need. You, That's a benefit you have when you have a quarterback on a long contract the patch did with Brady for years, constantly restructuring his deal. The Chiefs do it all the time with Mahomes, constantly restructuring his deal, pushing the guarantees down the road. If you're sure you're – now, this is where it's troublesome for the Dolphins. You eventually get to a point where you have to pay the bill. But if you're someone like the Chiefs and the Patriots and you know the quarterback's going to be there for 10 to 15 years, like you don't care about pushing the money down the road. You know yep. the quarterback's going to be there. Uh, it's called the, the Dodger Patriots. method. It's called the what method? The Dodger method. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So – 
They they have to the they, uh, you know hit a ball with a big stick and uh, yeah 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 that 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 dying sport I, I do remember vaguely uh, <laughs> I I think they have to make that decision on Tua I don't know what they're gonna do I I, I think they are gonna try to extend him but like you you can already see it right now like rap sheet like Joe Burrow didn't get extended until the NFL opener this year he didn't get extended until the first NFL game in September yeah so like. At the draft and in the owners' meetings, they're all going to say the right things. They're working it out. We'll see. You'll have Rapsheet and Schefter reporting on the negotiations all summer. You know, it's like you might not get an answer until literally week one uh, as Herbert to what they're going to do. Herbert was the same do. thing, too, I believe. Herbert was, like, late into, like, June, July, or August last year as well. Yeah, so it's going to it's gonna be annoying for that reason because it's going to take a minute to kind of sort through this, I think. Uh, I think they're going to try to extend him. I think they're going to try to extend him at a number less than $50 million per year. And I think he's going to say no to that. And look, the guy had serious concussions last year. It makes sense that he should fight for as much money as possible and not like, let me bet on myself and play another year. What if he gets concussed again? Like his career could be over. So well, I don't maybe the team should consider this before paying him a lot of money. They, the thing is, I understand that. But if you just don't extend him at all, like, how long does he need to stay healthy for? Because he's played more games than Joe Burrow has in his career. Like, Joe yeah, Burrow's had two season-ending injuries, and we just don't care because he made the Super Bowl. Fine. I get it. That's how it works. And so, almost back-to-back. Tua was with, one of the yeah, few. With, but you do – you kind of have to come back to the – what I call the not-sucking philosophy with quarterbacks, which is – He's just not sucking. Quarterback is a very scrutinized position. Um, I think with Tua, I see a lot of, you know, there's faults. I think there's a ceiling there. But he's playable, and he's won he's won his fair share of games, took his team to the playoffs. Uh, you know, the last couple of years, you can say the Dolphins have a top-five offense when they're, you know, functioning at their best. So at the end of the day, there are vi- the the list of quarterbacks that can reliably start in this league on a weekly basis is very very short. In fact, that that list is shorter than the number of teams that there are in the NFL. So he's playable. Uh, Just having a playable quarterback gives you a leg up today. And look, I still think there's room for growth, but like he led the NFL in passing. He was like on every, on any, I, I know with him, it's just, it's all Tyree kill. It's all Mike McDaniel. I understand just like Brock Purdy, like his numbers. If you just looked at his numbers, showed it to an average fan and gave them no other information, they would think this is the best quarterback in the NFL. He's literally number one in every single metric. Brock Purdy. Tua is usually number two in every single metric. EPA per play, passer rating, QBR, PFF grades. Now PFF has their problems. I'm not trying to endorse the product here. But oh, we one, know advantage, that. <laughs> one advantage they have on grading quarterbacks is they have a stack called big-time throws and turnover-worthy plays. So basically, if you throw a check down as a screen pass and it gets taken to the house, you don't get any points for that in their grading system. In theory, it's supposed to isolate away from quarterbacks where the receivers do all the work. You know, Tua ranks very high in their big-time throw metric. He was one of the highest in the league, only behind Josh Allen. And conversely, Brock Purdy was middle of the pack. That was actually a good metric at filtering out Brock Purdy versus the rest of the quarterbacks in the NFL, kind of saying, okay, this is a good quarterback, but this isn't a great quarterback. It's often a screen pass to Debo, and Debo takes it to the house, and that's not reflected in the other data. But that wasn't true with Tua. He was very high in their metrics. Like, they compared him to Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes in this stat. So I do think there's more there than is given credit for. And a lot of his games against bad teams that I understand people don't care about, like, You'll see him make those throws down the field. I, I told Jared this too when we talked about it after that Chiefs game. He underthrew that ball to Tyreek in the wind in the playoff game. Fine. Like, he wasn't doing that all year. Like, But because that's the playoff game, that's the hallmark memory. And now it's, oh, he underthrows every deep ball and Tyreek saves it and takes it to the house. No! Watch his highlight tape. I promise you. No, that wasn't true. Those throws just didn't often happen in primetime games, so most people haven't seen them. But, I mean, the very first game of the season against the Chargers, he was under pressure, stepped up in the pocket, and threw a 50-yard bomb to Tyreek Hill in stride to win the game. Like, that that was the opener of the NFL season. But that might have been, like, 10 years ago in most people's eyes at this point. Uh, So I think he's a good quarterback. I think he's a good quarterback. I think he's a very good quarterback. I think it's hard to do better than him. 
There are yeah. better quarterbacks than Tua, for sure. If you can right. point, if you can point me away that the Dolphins can get one of those guys, let's talk. But when you had four straight winning seasons, you have a veteran roster, and you just went eleven and six. Rely on a mid first round or late first round pick at quarterback instead on the chance that they're better than Tua. I don't think this team is in a position to do that. For better or worse, you ride this out for like a year or two or three. And if it doesn't work, then you reset the whole roster. Maybe a fucking Aaron Rodgers situation happens, but I don't really see that happening on the horizon because all the elite quarterbacks in the NFL right now are in their mid to late 20s and their teams are not giving them up. So I don't, no matter if you think Tua is elite or not, I don't think they're going to be able to do better. And I do think he's very good. And I do think he can. That's a good way of putting it. I, I think that, that that needs to be, you know, really the, the, that's what needs to be taken into consideration when, you know, we have these quarterback debates is, uh, you know, again, when we pick up our quarterbacks, put yourself in the team's shoes. Like, are they in a position to potentially upgrade? reason I'm so critical of the Giants is because I see them with a top 10 scenario. They could move on if, theoretically if they wanted to. The Dolphins being a recent playoff team, back end of the first round, given the current roster situation, um, you know, Tua just play, he just played in his first playoff game. You you can't argue that right now the the most advantageous direction is to stick with the guy and see if he can continue to get better. And look, when he stops improving, I will come on the show and I will say we've hit our ceiling. But I need to see him stop improving because. He just improved from the year before, not just because of health, but also in all the metrics that evaluate quarterback play too. When his numbers start to plateau or dip, and he's also like not staying healthy anymore, and he's not improving, then we can have that conversation. We've seen enough. Like Daniel, the reason why you're so convinced on Daniel Jones now, because you saw that playoff win, and then you saw this past year, and you were mm-hmm. like, okay, like I saw the peak, I saw him get worse again. And now I realize, okay, now I've seen enough, you know, and you can literally start Tyrod Taylor and he will probably be a better quarterback than Daniel Jones next year right away. Like I do not have that luxury with my team. Yeah, no, and I think that, and this is literally where I was last year too, right after the Giants playoff win, I I said, oh, well, well, Daniel Jones, he's playing the best ball of his career. It's like, yeah, let's keep it. He's not elite, but let's keep it going. So, yeah, I mean, I, I do. Is Tua going to fall off a similar cliff? Uh, maybe, probably not. We'll see. Hey, if he does, we'll I'll wave the white flag. But here's the thing: there's that thing that they get criticized for being so good against bad teams that makes it really hard to bottom out. You know, like if you if they're going to reliably beat the shit out of every bad team on their schedule every year, like it's hard to win less than nine games. Like you don't play that many playoff teams every year. Hi, winner of four games right here. Um, before we wrap up today, guys, I'm not going to ask you for a Super Bowl winner right now because, look, it's still 11 days out. There's a lot of storylines to be figured out. And with that, I want to end on this We're note. 49ers. Hey, you know who does two things at once? Christian McCaffrey. That's who. <laughs> In your face. Um, the thing I was going to go for, to be honest with you, was – a storyline you guys are looking forward to going into the Super Bowl or a player who you think that could be a true X factor in the game itself? Uh, Obviously, like not not to say like, you know, a star, like a unsung, like who could be an unsung hero if you think of like Super Bowl's past. So X factor that people like are not counting for, I guess is the, is the way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the Chiefs. I'm starting – this could be very, 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 very dangerous. I understand that. I understand that he's had a bad year. Oh, I no. think there's so something sad. to these deep plays down the field that Marquez Valdez-Gantling keeps making. Okay, he okay. caught two, two, two of those big plays against the, against the Bills. Like, coming out of halftime, they're down, trailing on the road, and they throw a 50-yard pass to MBS, like, right away. Mahomes – throws it to him with the game on the line last week. And the thing with MBS is, like a lot of deep threats, you don't need a lot of targets or a lot of catches to make that impact. All he needs is that one 50-yard touchdown in the middle of the third quarter, and that would be an X factor that you don't see coming. Again, he was horrible this year. He cost him that Eagles game. I understand that. I understand that. But we're starting to see something with them, too, in the playoffs in key moments. He's a 
very he's a volatile player to begin with because of the nature of where he gets his targets down the field. I don't think a lot of people are writing that in the Super Bowl previews. And I think if he has a touchdown, he could kind of be like what Kadarius Tony was for the Chiefs last year, except on offense instead of on special teams. Yeah. I was actually really worried that you were going to say Kadarius Tony. That's why I was already prepared. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no, no. He's yeah. gone yeah. from Kansas City. What do you was, wait, what do you start with the hear me out, hear me out, hear me out? No, All right. No, no. MBS, I, I actually we're on the same wavelength there. Um, I mean, I, I was going to say either him or Justin Watson because um everything big rat everything you said completely agree with i just wanted to add that with the 49ers where you really uh, can hurt this team is in the secondary right and rasheed rice has had a great rookie year i'm I've, I've, i'll pat myself on the back for calling um mid early um uh preseason that he was going to wind up being the chiefs wr1 uh, however um despite his strong play a lot of uh, you know a lot of with him uh, the plays start at the line of scrimmage. He's a catch and run kind of guy. Um, isn't running a lot of downfield routes. And if you really want to, you know, attack that secondary, you really want to go vertical. The guys best equipped to do that on the Chiefs' offense are Watson and MBS. Granted, it's going to be in small quantities. You know, there's going to be a handful of opportunities, and you see if you can make the most of them. Uh, I've, I've always I've been a Watson fan throughout the year, um, and he's kind of been phased out a little bit. Um, so I, I'd probably lean MBS in this spot because. The connection has been there in the playoffs so far. We've, we've seen it happen um, a couple times, uh, you know, in each playoff game so far. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think it could totally happen um, just because, uh, you know, at, at some point, um, the, you know, the 49ers are a very uh, dangerous offense and you got to find the, uh, you know, at some point, um, you know, as you're going, if you're dueling back and forth, uh, you might need somebody other than Kelsey or Rice to make a play. I have two. I'm going to go to the other side of the ball the other team my first one is one we've seen flashes of this guy in the playoffs a little bit but i feel like when it comes to third downs and you need that critical like say five or six yard game to get first down Jawan jennings is your man to go get the job done uh, i'm not here to say that he's gonna have like you know a crazy stat line like you know eight receptions 112 yards no i'm just gonna say he's gonna be that guy that you know when they need a catch and you're thinking oh are they gonna go to Debo? are they gonna go to Ayuk? are they gonna go to kill that's where they go. They go to Juwan Jennings. The other one I want to go to. This is a man whose significant other has been getting a lot of attention this year. It's not Travis Kelsey. Kyle Juszczyk. Yeah. Mm, I like that. I like that. My, that toe tap catch. I'm like, my God. In fact, a fullback has toes that twinkle like yeah. that. But my fiance, she looked at me during the game and she's just like, I didn't realize how good of a player he was. I think she thought it was like, you know, the Simone Biles, Jonathan Owen situation where the wife's famous, and then the athlete, he's not the best, but he's not, like, top of the order. And I was explaining to her that Kyle Juszczyk is an all-pro-level fullback, and he's the kind of guy, same thing, too, the guy you got to account for on the field. Fullback is a position I love, and fullback's a position I feel like that gets utilized a lot by very good teams. We've seen Bill Belichick do it for years in New England, which be interesting to see what happens going forward, but that's I've done a lot of episodes on that already. Um, so, yeah, Jennings and Juszczyk, those are my two big X factors. And I'll throw one in for um, Kansas City just for fun. Give me Clyde Edwards-Alaire. I know Isaiah Pacheco is just that pinball wizard just bouncing off everyone. But Clyde Edwards-Alaire has been coming on pretty strong as of late. I know he's had a lot of injury troubles so his short career so far. But when you need a big play in a Super Bowl, if we look back to a lot of them, it's the guys you don't expect. The one that hurts me the most, Jared, I don't know what kind of caliber player David Tyree was. But besides that catch, you never hear of his name. Hell, you don't even... When you think of that Super Bowl, no one goes to the fact that – and I was thinking about this the other day. You don't think about the Plaxico Burris, I believe it was second and goal, where he was wide open in the corner of the end zone. No, you think of the Tyree catch. Super Bowl 51, James White was the significant player of that game. So just the little players here and there that you want to think of. But anyway, guys, you know what? This it – was, it was a blast going to do this with you guys. We're going to have to do this again this offseason. Hope you guys had a great time. This has been episode number 200. And 77 of YWC Football Talk. If you guys want to give a Super Bowl winner right now, I'll leave it to the two of you. But if not, we'll just be out of awkward silence for five seconds and we'll get off the air. San Francisco 49ers win the game by a score of 27 to 21. Head says Niners, but I got a weird feeling that the Chiefs are going to do it again. You will hear my pick on the very last episode of the show before the Super Bowl. Have a good night, everyone. 
do did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice in the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast. Heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.